for coming out this morning. Uh, my name's Lee from Parkland Chapel, and you just heard a better part of Parkland Chapel's worship team came down here today, and uh, I'm just really pleased to be here with you guys. It's always a blessing to be able to share God's Word. And uh, Pastor Mike asked me a few weeks ago if I would come down here and fill in for him, and he asked me what I wanted to teach. And I said, what do you want me to teach? He said, well, would you think about picking up where I left off? And I said, nah, I don't know. Let me pray about that. And so I prayed about it, and uh, I said, you know, Mike, there's a lot of groundwork that you've already done there in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and it'd uh, be best if you picked it up. How about if I do something standalone? And he said, what do I pray about it? And I said, all right. Well, the Lord laid this on me, and I thought I'd share it with you guys this morning. We're going to look at the epistle of Jude, okay? We're going to try and go through the whole epistle today. I understand that uh, there's a lot here, so we'll skim through some of it pretty briefly. And what we want to keep in mind when we're looking at this is the time that Jude wrote this. He wrote this in about 66 A.D., fairly early in the church. But already in the church, apostasy was creeping into the church. The Gnostics were creeping in. There was false teaching, much like today. And if there was this teaching going on then, imagine how it is today, how much it's been multiplied today. So I'm going to give some examples of that as we go through this. And then the emphasis of this is to be able to understand what apostasy is or falling away or false teaching, but also, what do we do about that? What are we called to do as Christians? How are we to live in that, in apostasy, in a, a state where, not just the United States, but in the whole world, the state of the world right now, where I believe we are so close to the Lord's return, okay? I think Scripture clearly points that out. And this is one of the methods that the Holy Spirit has given us to be able to deal with that in that time. So we're going to look at that. So the first section there, I'll read, I'll read to you. We'll just go section by section rather than trying to read through the whole thing because it is 25 verses. So it starts out, Jude, a bondservant of James. Of, excuse me, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Okay, that first verse there, Jude, a bondservant. A bondservant. That sounds unusual. What's a bondservant? Is it somebody that owns a bond, owes a bond to somebody? Right? And then they're paying it back by working it off? Well, no. What this is is a bondservant in this time was you served, you may have been an indentured servant. For, you know, you paid back a debt for seven years. At the end of that seven years, you were released from that. You were a free man. But if you chose to be a bondservant, then you chose to serve that master to the end of your life. And in those days, you would walk up to a post, and they would drive an awl through your ear and put a ring in your ear. And that was the symbol that you were forever a servant of that particular family. The reason you would do that is if you loved your master. If you loved your master to the point you wanted to serve him for the rest of your life. So what Jude is saying here, and his brother James also said the same thing in his letter, that... I love my master so much, I look to serve him for the rest of my life with everything that I have. That's a bond servant. We who, who love Jesus Christ in this room, we are all bond servants of Christ. Now, notice there he says, brother of James. The brother of James, Jesus had, had four that were listed in Scripture, brothers and then sisters. It was, uh, and James and Jude were two of them. James was the oldest, Jude was the youngest. And notice that James doesn't claim there that he's the half-brother of Jesus. He claims to be the brother of James, who at the time, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But I think that speaks to his humility and that he understood that the spiritual relationship with Christ is much more than a relationship of blood brothers, much more than a relationship of friends. It's the most important relationship that there is. He says there in the next part of that verse, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. To those who are called, we are all called. Did Jesus not say that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him to me? Okay, That's what he's speaking to there. Now that word sanctified in the Greek, the actual Greek translation is agapeo, which is an unconditional love, rather than hagezo, which is sanctified. Some Bibles actually have that translated to say beloved, called beloved, beloved of God, beloved of the Father, beloved of the Son. And that's very important there. Um, 
and then it says we are preserved in Christ Jesus. If you guys would turn for a second and have your Bibles open, turn just a few pages over, go to Revelation 12, and we'll look at the 11th verse for just a second. Okay, now, as I mentioned earlier that, you know, I believe we're in a time of apostasy, a time of falling away. Um, what, if, what apostasy and falling away is, it means we're falling away from the apostles' doctrine and teaching, right? We're falling away of the established word of God that was given to the apostles and was finished when it was given. And so if we're falling away in that time, and, and if the tribulation is about to either come upon us or... I'm not going to try and get into today whether it's a pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, one of the... But irregardless, in that time, we're going to come under persecution. We're going to, Christians are coming under persecution right now, even in this country, much less what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, how many here watch the news? Would you like to be a Christian in Iraq right now or in Syria, Egypt, one of those Middle Eastern countries with ISIS? So here's, here's the remedy, the antidote for that. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by salvation in Christ Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, that we belong to him now. The word of our testimony, you know, Paul said in Romans 10 there, you know, that we, we believe with our hearts unto righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness, and we confess with our mouth unto salvation. That's the strength of their testimony, that we won't deny Jesus Christ in that time. And then finally, and they did not love their lives to the death. Think about that phrase for a second. It means they didn't hold their life so important and so worthy that they would deny Christ in their testimony. They were willing to lay down their lives for Christ. As Christ taught, told us, you know, that he's the good shepherd and he lays down his life for the sheep. And likewise, Jesus, he did not also say that no man has greater love than he who lays down his life for a brother. Well, this is that in reverse. We lay down our lives for Christ if called to that. So back to Jude. And then he says in verse 2, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Well, those are all great things, but what do they mean? What is, what is mercy? Is mercy not, not getting what we deserve? Are we not sinners? Are we not all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, according to Paul in Romans? Yeah, we have, but we get mercy. God shows us merciful. God actually lists his attributes in Exodus 34. He told Moses, Moses wanted to see him and see his glory, and God said, no man can look upon my glory and live, right? But what did he tell him? He said, the Lord God, the Lord God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in truth and justice, okay? God of himself lists his first character as mercy, we're all sitting in this room today because of the mercy that's been extended to us through Christ Jesus, right? We're all sinners. He's made a way to reconcile us to the Father by his blood. That's mercy. That's what, that's what he's speaking to. Jude is continually, through this passage of Scripture, he's going to continue to remind. This was written to believers. This book was written to believers. You'll hear it say beloved or brethren or brothers. These are believers this book was written to. And he wants, to, he, because apostasy is coming in with these false teachers, he wants the believers of the day to understand what's going on and what's expected of them, and it's the same for us today. It says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I find it necessary to write you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Beloved, again, brothers, sisters in Christ, he was going to write them a letter about some common issue in our faith. He was going to maybe speak to them about, you know, loving your brother, as Christ called there, you know, in John, or, you know, some issue, some doctrinal issue, but he was impressed by the Holy Spirit to write to them concerning this issue, to contend earnestly for the faith. So what does contend earnestly mean there? What is it to contend earnestly? Well, in the Greek that's translated, it actually means, means to contend to the point of agony, right? To struggle, to fight to the point where agony. Remember in Hebrews it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood for the faith. Well, this calls, this calls us to that as believers. That's where he's talking to there. And he says, for the faith. What is the faith he's talking about? 
the faith is the apostles' teaching. As it says in Acts 2.42, it said that, that they stayed and they continually studied the apostles' teaching. Right? They fellowshiped together. They broke bread together, and they remained in prayer. That was the four pillars of the church that they were called to. He, he, this is the faith. But during that apostles' teaching, it's basic doctrinal teaching, what we all believe as Christians, right? We believe that God the Father in heaven made all creation through the Son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus left his throne in heaven, he emptied himself of his glory in spite of the shame, and he came to earth and he was born of a virgin, okay? He was born of that virgin. He grew to be a man, just as us, tempted in all things, and yet perfect and blameless, the blameless Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said. And then he set his face to the cross. He knew where he was going. He knew he came to that purpose. He came to save us by his shed blood, right? In Hebrews, it says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. We are that joy, ladies and gentlemen. We are that joy. That's what he came for to pay for us. That's how much he loved us. Then he died on the third day, he rose, and he was seen for 40 days, and then he sits at the right hand of the Father now as our both advocate and our propitiation, okay? Those are the basic tenets of Christian belief. Anything that teaches against any part of that, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the truth of Christ as one with the Father, that is an apostic or heretical teaching, and that's what we're looking here. This book might better be called, rather than Jude, Acts of the Apostates, right? I mean, that's what this is all about here. So he wants them to get that, that that's the faith. That's the faith. And, it, and he says here, then he says, which was once for all delivered to the saints. What that phrase means is that when this Bible, when this book was canonized, when it was finally all delivered after the last teaching that was inspired word of God, you know, that word inspired, inspirio, God breathed, God breathed these words. When this book was completed, that's all there is, ladies and gentlemen. Christ was the last prophet, priest, and king. After him, we have no need of anything else. Now, what he's speaking there to is these apostates were coming in, and they were telling them stories. They were denying Christ, and then they were making up stories and other beliefs. And we don't have time to get into the Gnostics today, but a big part of this were the Gnostics, which is from the word to know in the Greek, to know. Okay? They had a teaching where they were teaching the people that all matter, including our bodies, is evil, okay, and only the spirit is good, and that they had a special knowledge directly from God that allowed them to bypass Jesus Christ and deny his deity as God the Father, and these were the lies that were going on at the time. That's what he's contending against here, contend for the faith against those things, okay. And so, but today, do we have any issues like that today? You know, I'm probably going to offend some people here today, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to preach this thing as it is, okay? Does anybody have a, know anybody that's a Mormon? You know any Mormons? Do you know any Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay? Okay, we're going we're gonna to close out with how we're supposed to deal with those people as according to the Scripture. But they're teaching, a, they're teaching heresies. They're, they're modern-day apostates. The Mormons, to them, the Bible, the Holy Bible, well, they say that they follow the Holy Bible, Right? But they also say, oh, this book is corrupted by man and man's translations over the years. So we have the more perfect book, the Book of Mormon. And we have this book called The Doctrines and the Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Okay? They're all bogus. According to this scripture right here, once this faith was given and completed by the apostles, that's it. Everything else is heresy. They teach things like, the Mormons teach that, that God was a man like us. And because of his righteousness and his good works, he, came, he became God. And you can all do the same. And that's why Mormons have so many kids. They teach you have a lot of kids and a large family because one day you're going to be a god of your own planet and you're going to need to populate that planet with your people. Okay, they teach that. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the deity of Christ. They teach that Jesus... Oh, oh, back to the Mormons for a minute. The Mormons teach that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. Satan was the bad brother, Jesus was the good brother. Not that he's God, but that he's a created being, right? Likewise, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that Jesus is the archangel Michael who set aside his angelic attributes and became Jesus a man, okay? These are all false teachings. That's what, that's what we're speaking to here. You know, and we have, we have heresy in the church today. In the Christian church, we have heresy. We have things that are not of the word of God. We have... 
We have churches today. I live in the little town of Farmington, you know, 16,000 people. There's an Episcopalian church there, and the woman, there's a woman pastor. First of all, which is incorrect according to Scripture, Paul clearly told us in Timothy and in Titus that leaders of the church, elders and pastors, are to be the husband of one wife, okay? Man and woman, one wife. And not only that, she's a lesbian, and she's out of the closet. And that's in a little town of Farmington. This, you know, this is widespread throughout the country. So what happens when, when you know, many churches, mainline denominations, the Presbyterians, the Methodists now, the Episcopalians, these were all mainline denominations. They are now ad, not, not just accepting homosexuals in the clergy, they're advocating for it. So do you think there's going to be any power in God's word when you so violate God's precepts and ordinances and teaching? Will God honor that? So is the church weak today? So count your blessings that you come to a little church that people might laugh at because it's a storefront, right? But you've got a pastor that sits on this stool who loves God, and he teaches you the Word of God without excuse, okay? Praise God for that. This is where the power is. This is the power. There's no power in anything but Christ and Him crucified. And that's what this book speaks to from start to finish, right? Pastor Mike's teaching you that word by word by word, okay? Count your blessings for that. So we'll move on here, get off my stool for a minute. Okay. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Says here they crept in unnoticed. How did these people, these apostates, creep into the church? I'll tell you how. Because the shepherds and the watchmen on the walls who were supposed to be standing up there and be grounded in the Word of God, were not grounded, and they allowed them in. Many of these apostates, and particularly the Gnostics, they were alleged Christians who were teaching these false doctrines. They crept into the church. They came in by the side door, okay? So it's like Jesus, you know, they, they should have judged them, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, judge them by their fruit. Look what they do, not what they say, right? Look at everything through that eye, okay? That word, that phrase there, they who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord. That word lewdness is also translated into lasciviousness or licentiousness. Okay, Licentiousness, what is that? What does that mean? It means license to sin. Part of the teaching that they were teaching these people is that because we are saved by grace, you know, grace where God gives us what we don't deserve, okay? We're saved, we come simply to Him by faith and are saved by grace. They taught because only the body was matter and is evil. Do whatever you want in the body. There was this line of thought called antinomianism. And what that meant was, I can do whatever I please. I can sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I can do whatever because my spirit has been saved before the Lord. My spirit is separate my body. It doesn't matter. Remember what Paul said in Romans 6? He said, may it never be. May it never be. You know, that we would sin so that grace would abound more. That's what he was talking about there. We're not going to sin and bring in more grace. That's not going to happen, okay? So that's, what, that's what's going on right there in that passage. It says, but I want to remind you, this is verse 5, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, for these next few verses, we're going to look at three people groups, groups of people that were worshipers, groups of people, God's chosen people in this instance, right? who because of unbelief, God brought judgment upon them. And that's part of what Jews getting at here. Stay in Orthodox Christianity. Believe, because you will be judged. You know, Does the Scripture not tell us that every man is going to give account for what he has done? It says every man. It doesn't just say Christians. It doesn't say unbelievers. It says every man. Now, granted, you and I, we're all going to stand before the Father covered in the blood of Christ. We'll go to the mercy seat rather than the white throne judgment. Okay, But we're still going to have to give account for that. So the story here, this is out of Genesis, or excuse me, this is out of Numbers 13 and 14, and because of time, I'll, I won't read you a bunch of verses I had chosen. I'll just I'll give you the story. If you want to look at it later, read Numbers 13 and 14. So after the Hebrew people were saved out of Egypt, okay, they were delivered out of Egypt in the Exodus. Moses led them out, and they were in the wilderness, and they were wandering. And they, came, they finally came up into the wilderness of Paran, and there they looked, they looked, they came across, and God said to Moses, 
get one man from each tribe, a leader of each tribe, 12 men, we're going to send them into the land, we're going to spy it out, because this is the land I'm going to give you. I'm giving you, this is, your, this is the promised land, this is where I brought you to. So they sent these 12 spies into the land, and they went up into the valley, they went up towards Hebron, and they came to the valley of Eshcohol, and when they were there, they found it was incredible, right? It was so incredible that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but there were many villages, and they were walled villages, and they said there are giants in the land, right? They're the descendants of the Anak, and, they were, and so the, these spies, some of them were afraid, most of them were afraid, okay? But they were also told to bring back fruit. So you probably all know the story. They brought back a cluster of grapes that was so tall that men had to carry it on sticks, and it was still dragging the ground, okay? And they brought back fruit. And so they came and they gave the report to Moses. And the report was, oh, yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. They said, we are like grasshoppers before them. And they were scared. And they said, we can't take our children into this land. We'll be slaughtered, right? Except for two. And who knows who the two were who didn't agree? Joshua and Caleb, the two which ended up leading the people into Israel. But God was angry because they did not trust him, when, and they did not trust that he said he could give them the land, and all they had to, and Caleb says, let's go take it. God's given it to us, right? If God goes before us, how can we lose? But these other ten, whiners and complainers, oh, we can't do it, we can't do it. So guess what? God said, all right, you don't trust me? You guys are all going to die in the wilderness. They wandered, that generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, 38 more years at this point. And the only two that made it into the land was Joshua led them and Caleb was his right-hand man, okay? Caleb, when he spied out Hebron, he wanted that land. Later on, you read where, where it says of Caleb that he was 80 years old and still able to go out and do battle. He was 80 when he came into the land and was still a fierce warrior. So... But then God told these people too, he says, but don't worry, these children that you were worried about coming into the land, we're going to die in the land, they're the people that are going to come into the land that I'm going to give it to and will establish my kingdom with them. So the children, that generation made it into the land. So the lesson that, he, that Jude's trying to get across there is when God tells you to do something, when God clearly writes it in his word, don't disobey, there's judgment. Okay, the next thing he talks about, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains until the darkness of the judgment of the great day. There's a bit of controversy about this passage. There's two basic lines of thought. One of them says that, and it goes back to Genesis 6, 4 through 6. If you want to turn there for a second, we'll look at this. This is pretty interesting. Like I said, you know, when you start studying this stuff and you start reading these commentaries and, and going online and, and reading the Bible, and you start finding not everybody agrees on what the Scripture says. That's why we have to let the Holy Spirit, who is our interpreter, interpret to us and teach us these things. Okay, so it says... Um, I think I got the... Did I get the right? Six, Genesis 6, 4 through 6, I was in 4. Okay, Okay. there were giants on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, Jesus spoke to that too, and he said he wasn't, he wasn't fooled by man. But what's happening there, you notice it says that there were mighty men of old, and there were giants in the land. And the sons of God came into the daughters of men. What's that phrase mean? Anybody ever thought about that? Has anybody ever read that one and been stumped? What is going on there? Well, if you turn to Job, you see that when Satan came before God, it says he came with the sons of God, right? It speaks to angels. That was common phraseology for angels. So what this line of thought teaches is that these angels left their abode, which is what he speaks of here. He says, they left their proper domain and they left their abode. The sons of God came into the daughters of men. In other words, it says that they left their angelic bodies, took on bodies of flesh, and came into the women. 
okay? And from that, these giants were birthed. And at that point, there was great evil in the world. And if you read further in Genesis, this is about where it's getting ready. God's getting ready to bring the flood because he is so disgusted with all that's gone on. That's one belief in a nutshell. The other one is simply that what he's speaking to here is just that because a third of the angels left left heaven with Lucifer, when Lucifer was thrown down, they left their proper abode and they are being reserved until judgment. Although they are demons and they are still running about rampant right now trying to dis- bring deceit, you know, fool Christians and keep others from coming to Christ. So those are the two. You can make your pick. If we had time to go through that, we could, we could preach for an hour on that and, and, you know, compare those two and look at them. But that's what he's speaking to there. And then he says, "...in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and having gone over to strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." We all know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God sent two angels that looked like men. They looked so much like men that the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to pull them out of Lot's house and have sex with them, sodomize them, okay? And, of course, that didn't happen. But the point of that is, is it says, the key verse there is, they gave themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Uh, in... I, I like to read a lot of the Jewish commentaries, the Hebrew commentaries on, on particularly Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the Jewish sages and rabbis, they taught that that was the most heinous sin before God, sodomy. And that's why God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it also goes back to Genesis 6 when he brought the flood, you know, if you, if you read the commentaries. Do we have any issue like that today in the United States? Do we have... I mean, we can't even figure out who can use whose bathroom, right? I mean, you know what that goes to? That goes to denying the creation where it says, and God made them man and woman, okay? That's denying God's truth right there. We've got, not only that, we have got, we've come to the point where not only is it we're supposed to accept homosexuals, we advocate for them. The government advocates for this. This is good. This is a good thing. This is not a good thing according to God. God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for that very thing, destroyed it with fire, it's thought now that it's the bottom of the Dead Sea, right? So, are we due for judgment? Has anybody ever heard what Billy Graham said about this issue? Billy Graham said that if God fails to judge America for its sin of homosexuality, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anybody here see God apologizing for anything? You know, Scripture in Psalm says that, that our God sits in heaven and does as he pleases. He is sovereign. Okay. So, once again, an example of judgment. And he's in verse 8, Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh and reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Okay, dreamers defile the flesh. Basically, what he's saying there is these crazy people, with their thoughts and the things that they teach, bring people to defiling the flesh. They defile their own flesh, and they defile other people's flesh. You know, when you take the Word of God and throw it out the window, then all bets are off. I mean, it's whatever goes, right? That's what they were teaching them. They reject authority. What does it say in Romans 13? I'll look at that for just a second. Turn to Romans 13. Okay, it says... Paul wrote this to the Roman church. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that, are exi- that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. That's what he's speaking to here. This is exactly what Jude is speaking to. Speak evil of dignitaries. Has anybody here ever spoken evil of a politician or somebody in authority? Boy, I have, you know, and I, and I still have issue with that when I see the things that are going on here. But look at the, he's going to give in verse 9 an example of this, and this is the only place this is found in Scripture. Verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, this Michael the archangel, this is the archangel Michael 
in, in uh, Revelations 12 that says that warred with the great red dragon and was victorious over the dragon, Satan, and threw him to the earth. Okay? This is, that, this is that Michael. Michael is called the prince of the Jewish people. This is a powerful angel. Probably in the hierarchy of God, it was Lucifer and then Michael and Gabriel. Okay? Of, and they were all created beings. The Creator created them. Michael understood his position that even though Satan was cast out and Satan, but he still understood the position he, was, he had. It was much like David. Remember when David had the opportunity to kill Saul? in the wilderness of En Gedi when he was in the cave and Saul went in to go to the restroom and David was hiding there and he had a sword, he could have killed him, but he let him go. And David said, I will not, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul was still the anointed king of Israel. David could have taken his life. David had already been anointed king by Samuel when he was a kid, okay? But he didn't because he was still in authority. So that's what's going on here, Michael. Michael, he contends with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. What's that mean? What's that? Who, everybody ever read that verse and thought, what was he talking about there? When Moses died, remember, up on Mount Nebo? And then nobody knows where Moses' grave is. Nobody knows. But Michael, the archangel, it says he disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. Why would the archangel, why would God send the archangel Michael to dispute with Satan over the body of a dead man, Moses? Maybe God has a plan for that body, okay? Anybody ever read in Revelation 11 about the two witnesses in the end times? It's believed that one is Moses and one is Elijah, even though they aren't named. There's a lot of scripture that points to that. Think about this. Elijah, did Elijah die? Elijah was translated. He was taken up, as we all will be in the rapture. God wanted that body to a purpose. Same with Moses' bones. How many people did Jesus raise from the dead, right? And not just Elijah raised from the dead. People have been raised from the dead. Did Satan want that body to keep that from happening in the end times? I don't know. I think that's interesting. And the scripture could be read and understood that way. Verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. Okay. Speak evil, they blaspheme. They blaspheme against the Word of God. They tell lies. Okay. Uh, Peter spoke to that real well. Turn over just a few pages to 2 Peter 2.12. And here again, it's almost the same thought. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil, evil of the things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. These are the apostates. He's calling judgment on these apostates. He says, woe, in verse 11, woe to them. That phrase, where, where else have you heard that phrase? What did Jesus say in his last week of his life when he called down on the Pharisees in the temple, on the temple mount? He said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he went on and laid out all these things that were wrong, that were sin, that were going to, judgment was going to be brought on them. Woe unto you. That's, that's a phrase that means basically wail in agony and in pain. Okay, that's what's going to come to you. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Woe unto them, the way of Cain. I'm gonna, I'll just flip to this for a second. Uh, Hebrews 11.4. This is the way of Cain. Poor Dave and Mandy, they heard all about this the other night up at Terralac. Okay. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through, through it he being dead still speaks. Cain brought an offering that was not acceptable to God because it was not brought in faith. It was not brought in faith demonstrated by obedience. Abel brought an offering that was acceptable. We're not going to get into that. We don't have time. But that's what, he, that's what Jude is speaking to there. The error of Balaam for prophet. Balaam was a prophet in modern-day Iraq. And he was a prophet for hire. So the king of, of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam to come and put a curse on the people 
the Hebrew people that were camped on the plain of Moab. He had heard from other kings how these people, these Israeli people, these Israelite people are coming in and wiping these kings out. So he figured, I'll hire this guy Balak, and he'll come, and he'll put a curse on them, and then my, my, my kingdom will be preserved, right? Because Balak, excuse me, Balaam did that for profit. So you know the story. He shows up on the donkey, and the donkey sees the angel, and he kicks Balaam off, but he goes ahead with it. So three times... But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, these are my people, don't curse them. But he still wanted the money, right? He still wanted the profit. So he went three times and he blessed the people of Israel rather than cursed them, okay? But he still wanted his money. So what he did was he told Balak, he goes, here's what you do. God will curse them. Send, your, send the pretty little Moabite women out onto the plain and let the Hebrew men get all hooked up with these Moabite women and worship their idols, their false idols, and God will bring a curse upon them, right? You remember that story? And how Phineas, Phineas drove one of, the, one of the Israelite men and a Moabite woman into the ground right outside the tabernacle with a spear, okay? That's what went on there, and he got paid. Balaam got profit, okay? He, he got paid for that. And then Korah, of course, is the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a man with some of his buddies decided that Moses and Aaron shouldn't be leading the people of Israel, so he, <laughs> he decided that to lead a rebellion, well, Moses said, well, we'll see. If you die of natural causes, you're right, but if the ground swallows you up, God put me in charge. Well, what happened? The ground opened up and he was swallowed. So, those are three, so you have three people groups and three separate instances, people who did not follow God, who were disobedient to God, and God brought judgment. He says, these are spots on your love feasts. Well, they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Spots on your love feasts. I don't have time to go through all these verses. I'm probably almost out of time now. Um, spots on your love feasts. These are people who break, break bread with you, share communion with you, and they're false teachers, they're apostates, and they're just, they're just feeding themselves first rather than the flock, right? Winds without, clouds without water. Have anybody been disappointed in the heat lately when we see all these clouds blowing through and it doesn't drop any water on us, doesn't give us any rain? Well, what he's speaking to there is he's speaking also to Jesus, the living water, right? These clouds, these false teachers, they had no Jesus in them. They had no truth in them. They weren't preaching Jesus. There was no living water, so to speak. Trees twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They, again, were false teachers, and they deserved to be pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Raging waves of the sea. You know when waves just churn, they just bring up all the dirt and all the garbage and all the junk from the bottom? That's what he's saying there. These people with their teaching, they just brought up all the garbage and trash. Okay? Blackness of darkness forever. That's another phraseology for hell. Hell is not only burning eternally for, in fire, but it's also the, the spiritual sense of being in blackness, darkness, impenetrable separation from God forever. That's that blackness and darkness. And he talks about Enoch, who prophesied there in verse 14. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. See, also, that's also the only place that that's listed in the Bible. It speaks to Revelation 19. But Enoch, there was a book of Enoch that wasn't canonized because it was lost, but Enoch spoke of the prophecy. What's interesting there is Enoch, did Enoch die? Did Enoch die a physical death? No, because Enoch was translated also. It is said that he was a friend of God and walked with God, and God took him to heaven. So then, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. When does the Lord come with ten thousands of his saints for judgment? In Revelation, after the rapture, after the translation of his saints are taken up, the same as Enoch was translated up without death. See, the beauty of the Scripture is, when you start reading it and studying it, you find it all ties together from first to last. No men could have written this book. There's just not that many possible coincidences that could come to pass. You know, it, it's, it's said for the prophecies of Jesus, okay, of all the prophecies that were written of Jesus in the Old Testament, for even one of them to come true to the day, for instance, Daniel. 
the 49 weeks of Daniel and then the seventh week where it spoke of the Christ coming into Jerusalem on the day of the ascension, okay? For that to be true, you would have to stack the state of Texas, you would have to have a stack of quarters 30 feet high and paint one quarter red, and the chances of you finding that would be jumping out of an airplane with a parachute and landing on that one quarter. That's, that's for that one prophecy. There's 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming. Guess what? There's twice as many prophecies of his second coming written in this book. So that's why this book is so wonderful. This is not a book. This is the Word of God. The Word became flesh. This is, this is his book. So that's what he's trying to get to these saints, understand these things. Verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, four times. Ungodly means without God in your life, separated, just disrespectful, disobedient to God. 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Now he's really going to start defining what these apostates are and what they do. Grumblers. Grumbling is when you just mumble under your breath. You know, I don't like this. Complainers are just when you outright complain and moan about your state in life, which goes against, I was speaking to Adam about this this morning, Romans 8, 28. All things. It says all things work together for the good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. All things, whether we're in the middle of the ugliest thing in the world, whether our spouse has died of cancer, whether our child is run over by a car, or we're standing on the mountaintop with Christ in the most extreme joy. Okay, all things, it says. That's peace right there. And that's complaining against that you are unhappy with your estate. Walking according to their own lusts. Now, that's not a sexual term, walking according to their own lusts. That's whenever you put an idol, anything, before God. It could be your car. It could be your house. It could be your children. It could be your wife. That's your own lust and your own desire for anything you put ahead of God. That's what he's speaking to there. They may mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Does that sound anything like politicians? How about our news media today? Is that the case today? Can you believe anything you hear? You have to hold it up to the word of truth if you want to believe it, okay? And that's what he's saying these people did. They, they lied, they flattered to gain advantage over people. These are the apostates. But you, beloved, again, us believers, remember the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words. In other words, study the words. Scripture says that in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and He became flesh. This Word is all of God and His attributes. Study this thing, stay in the faith. That's your defense against these false teachers. Verse 18, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Yeah, you know, that was spoken of in Timothy and in Thessalonians. And that, that remember in, in uh, well, I'll just turn there real quick. First Timothy. rather than me butchering it in my translation. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. These apostates, they're spirit-led. Um, I had an opportunity the other night to teach on the children of God versus the children of Satan. The children of Satan are led by Satan because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them to know any different, okay? So they are easily more susceptible even than us. We still are in the flesh, but we have the Spirit of God in us to be fooled by these false teachings. These are sensual persons. Sensual, that means selfish, who cause divisions not having the Spirit. Once again, he's speaking about... These people come into the church, and because they create disunity, and has anybody ever been in a church where there was disunity? Is it a pleasant thing? Have you ever been involved in a church split? Christ desires unity in his church. These people come in, and they split churches, and they create disunity because that distracts people from the real truth of Christ. Okay, That's what they're all about. Okay, we're going to start wrapping this up. 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay, build yourselves up on the most holy faith. In other words, study this Bible. One of my favorite verses is, uh, is out of Acts 17. When it talks about the Bereans. Paul had been beaten in Thessalonica. His disciples brought him to Berea. And his was his habit. He went into the synagogues and he taught Jesus in the synagogues. And it was said of the Bereans that they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So when somebody's teaching you something, for me, I'm up here teaching you guys today. I've given you all these Scripture references. Read them for yourself. Understand if I'm a false teacher or not by maintaining the faith, by staying in the Word, so that you can filter everything through the Word of God for truth. Okay? That's what the Bereans did. And that's what Jude's telling these people here. Don't be fooled by these apostates, false teachers, heretics. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's not of the Word of God. It's of Satan. It's the teaching of Satan. It says, praying in the Holy Spirit. What is that? Don't we always pray in the Holy Spirit? But he specifically says there, pray in the Holy Spirit. Okay? I believe that goes to, and I think there's scripture that points to that, the method that we pray, you remember Paul says, we don't even know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit prays through us and groans. And, to, and, you know, a good model maybe for prayer, you know, we come, do we just come to prayer and, and just ask for things? Oh God, you know, give me you know, a new car or so-and-so sick. Or do we, you know what, a, a, probably a good model for prayer is a thing called acts. Anybody heard of that model for prayer? We adore. We give him adoration and praise, okay? Then we confess our sins so that we can come before him with pure hearts and clean hands, right? And then we give him thanks for all he's done for us. And then finally, then we lift up our supplications, our requests, okay? That's probably a better model for prayer, and I, and I believe that's what he was speaking to there. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So he's extended this mercy to us that we already spoke about. We've come to him. He's given us eternal salvation. Let's keep ourselves in that. Let's continue to keep our eyes focused on him. Again, another defense against heretics and apostates. And it says, And on some having compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled with the flesh. Okay. Many of you have heard that this epistle is, is called to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. Now, but you've probably also heard, contend for the faith, but don't be contentious. When, when a nice Mormon boy or Jehovah's Witness kid comes to the door, you know, hey, they're, they're just, they're, they've been fooled by their teachers. They probably don't know the difference. So share Jesus with them in a loving manner. Share truth in love with them, okay? Don't get nasty with them. Don't, you know, insult them, okay? But yet, be firm and contend for the faith. The faith is worth everything. It's all we are. Now, that's, that's just those that are maybe doubters and don't really know, or they're young. I mean, believe me, I've had a f great time with some of these kids that come to the door, you know, and sharing them and showing them out of the Bible the truth. You know, and showing them where their error lies. And they're dumbfounded. Believe me, they, they can't stand up to anybody who's a Berean and studies the Word of God. right? But I don't get nasty with them. I try and reach them in love. I try and share Christ with them as Christ share, shared Himself with me. Okay? But then again, he says, But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. I don't have, I'm sorry I don't have time to break all these things down for you. But in a, in a nutshell, what he's saying there is these ones that are the teachers, these ones that are the leaders of these groups that are infecting the church and, and, and fooling people into losing their salvation, you can be a little harsh with them. Snatch them from the fire, whatever it takes. Jerk them out. You know, you know I was a fireman for 36 years out in Los Angeles. And I can relate to this. You know, pulling them out of the fire, hating the garment defiled by the flesh, you know, there's times, yeah, when people are in a building on fire, man, I, I didn't have time to mess around and mollycoddle them. I freaking grab them and jerk them out the door however I could get them out. That's what he's saying there. Jerk them out of the hell fire. Get them out, okay? But I want well, to make one last point here. Uh, number, verse 24. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Look back at verse 21. We're commanded to keep, he says, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. But then he says in 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Are those contrary terms? He says, keep yourself in the love of God. How do you keep in the love of God? Study the word, pray, fellowship with believers, right? Okay, keep yourselves. But then he says to the one who is able to keep you. Guess what, folks? We don't do it on our own. That Holy Spirit that's in us is keeping us. Jesus said, you know, he told the Father, I have not lost one that you have given me. And there's no power on earth or under the heaven that can snatch a believer from the hand of God. We're being kept. We're being preserved by the love of God, by the love of Christ. Okay? That's what he's speaking to there. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. On that last day, ladies and gentlemen, do we want to be found faultless before him, covered in his blood? Do do you want to hear, good job, faithful servant, enter into the rest of your Lord? Or do you want to hear, depart from me, I never knew thee, right? Do you want to be ashamed of his coming when he comes in that day in his glory? No. You want to be there and you want to be received as sons and daughters, righteous before him because of his righteousness, because of the obedience, because he loved you first and you loved him back. You were obedient. That's where you want to be. And then finally, he gives a a great benediction here. He says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That says it all. That says it all. So you guys pray with me? So Heavenly Father, thank you for your servant Jude. Lord, thank you that your spirit convicted him and convinced him to write a book about the apostasy and the time we live in today, the time they lived in then. And that he gave us examples of the apostates so that we might understand the falsity. Lord, thank you that you are truth. And thank you, Lord, for the truth of it is that the apostles, the apostates, they sought to steal people from you, to steal their salvation. But Lord, you are truth and you are light. And this, and this epistle shows that. Lord, I pray that we would understand the words written on these two pages. And Lord, that we would be bold for you. And that we would just go forward from this place. And your light would shine in us. And people would see that we are different. That we love one another as you have commanded us. And that, Lord, we love our neighbors as you loved all. That some might be drawn to yourself. Father, I would ask you would bless these people here with that. And Lord, through that you would be blessed and your harvest would increase. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are a mighty God. You are worthy of all our praise. We thank you. And we love you so. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.